Hey, how's it going, New Hope? Great to see you again. My name's John, I'm one of the pastors. Thanks so much for taking time to join our online gatherings. We're grateful and we'd love to be with you in person. That day is coming at some point, uh, but to have the technology to allow us to do this, we're grateful, so thanks. Uh, in, in 1985, uh, in Birmingham, Alabama, there were two robberies that led to two deaths of the, the store managers at, at local restaurants. Later that year in nearby Bessemer, Alabama, Another restaurant was robbed. Uh, another manager was shot but not killed. Later, this manager identified the shooter as Anthony Ray Hinton. The problem was Anthony was working 15 miles away at the time of the shooting in a locked warehouse facility with lots of other witnesses. Uh, Anthony was, was a black man in Alabama. Anthony was brought in uh, for questioning uh, right from the get-go. They thought that he did it. The DA, who had a uh, history of racial prejudice, said that he took one look at Anthony and knew that he was evil and knew that he committed the crime. They found a gun, an old rusty gun, in Anthony's mom's house that they tied to the three uh, crimes. From the beginning, Anthony vehemently uh, denied any involvement in the shootings, had an alibi, took a lie detector test, passed with flying colors, but it was never allowed at trial. Anthony was very poor, and so he was given uh, an attorney, uh, a state attorney, who brought in a terrible witness. The only evidence was the, the firearm. He brought in a firearms expert that uh, had no background in, in firearms and, uh, and, and struggled to even uh, see properly. His only uh, witness uh, was no good uh, for Anthony at all. So that led to a quick conviction. It led to, to an Anthony uh, heading to uh, death row. Anthony uh, later said his, his only crime at that point was being a black man in Alabama. Uh, 1985, that was, what, 35 years ago. You'd like to think in the year 2020, we're, we're no longer dealing with that, but we still are. And our, we're having a national reckoning right now uh, over the deaths of uh, Ahmaud Arbery, Breonna Taylor, George Floyd, and, and many others. Uh, and it's long overdue. Uh, New Hope uh, staff and leadership has come out with an email many of you have received uh, over the last couple of days where we uh, state some of our thoughts, biblically and otherwise, on what's going on in our country. And we, just for the record, we firmly denounce any form of racism and, and all of its evil manifestations. And we stand in solidarity with our sisters and our brothers of color as they seek justice. Anthony uh, was confined to a cell on death row for 30 years. The cell was five by seven. The only thing in the cell was a bed attached to the wall. Anthony was six foot two. So for all those 30 years, his feet hung off the end of the bed. And then there was a, a toilet. Anthony was 30 feet away from the death chamber during his time there, 53 uh, men were executed. Anthony said he had never smelled anything like the smell of, of burning flesh. A key part of the story is that Anthony was a committed and passionate uh, follower of Jesus. Anthony said a few years in, he decided he would forgive the people that unjustly put him behind bars. He said he did it not, not so that they would sleep well at night, but that he would sleep well at night. He said they took pretty much everything from him, but he would have never, never allow them to take his joy. 14 years in, consistently saying that he never did it, he had nothing to do with it, he finally got a good lawyer, Brian Stevenson from the, the Equal Justice Initiative. And Brian and his team came in, and for 16 years, 
uh, fought hard to tell Anthony's story and to set him free. And they worked it all the way up through every level of the courts and were denied at every turn. And finally, all the way up to the U.S. Supreme Court, uh, and they unanimously overturned his conviction and sent it back to Alabama for a trial. Alabama never tried him because they quickly ran the gun evidence and saw that the gun had nothing to do with the crimes. Some, a simple test that, that Brian and his team had been asking for for 15 years. So on April 3rd, uh, 2015, after 30 years on death row, Anthony Ray Hinton was finally released from prison. There's a short little video that I want you to watch of the moment that he's being released. Uh, check it out. Do you want to reshoot? We good? You want to do do it again? Or you're. I mean, it's early enough in that I can. Yeah, sure. Great. Telling everybody that they're racist, and we move on. No, no, you didn't. While we've got to stop here, um, I sent you um, a quick email about one scripture reference that was slightly. Yeah, it won't affect this. Yeah. Um, Martin is doing the reading. Is that correct? That's good. I was going to say that, but I forgot to. Okay, we're all locked in. Just random details. Let's just get the right scripture passage this week. <laughs> then he reads. Jeez. Oh, what a freaking idiot I am. All right, we didn't get that on video, did we? Okay. <laughs> Are we ready? We're ready. Isn't that incredible? It's, it's hard uh, for me to watch that, and I've seen it numerous times, and, and not, not weep for joy. Anthony said one of the things he still does after all the years on death row is he goes out at night when everybody's in bed, and he just looks up at the stars for 30 years. He couldn't see stars. I don't know if you heard the first thing he said when he was being hugged and his relatives were there. He said, the sun does shine. It's something his mother told him. His mother passed away when he was uh, in, in prison. And this is the name of a book that he wrote that is a, just a remarkable book. I'm in the middle of reading it right now. My wife has read it. Our daughter, Eden, has read it as well. I want to encourage you to read Anthony's remarkable story. Anthony has now gone on. He, he met uh, President Obama. He met Queen Elizabeth. He was at Nelson Mandela's 100th birthday party. He even got an honorary doctorate. I think that there's a, a picture uh, coming up of that. Anthony is uh, the, one of the longest serving uh, people uh, on death row that have been exonerated. I mean, 30 years. He is number 153 of people that have been put on death row that have been exonerated. In fact, uh, of, the, of every nine people executed on death row, one person is exonerated from death row. So there's clearly some brokenness in that system that demands change. Today, we're going to look at the story, continue to look at the story of a man named Joseph. And it's a similar incident. Joseph will be falsely accused. Joseph will be put in prison. But like Anthony, Joseph will sense that God never leaves him, that God is with him, and that even in the injustice, that God is doing something uh, in and through the trouble uh, that finds Joseph. We are in the third week of a series uh, called You'll Get Through This, and it's lessons from the life of the Old Testament character Joseph. We've been using Max Licato's book uh, by the same name, You'll Get Through This, 
please read along with us. I've heard a, a ton of you are reading great things. It's a remarkable book. We've got all kind of uh, book club stuff going on online. You can just join that club and uh, interactions throughout the week. So, so jump on in there. I think it will deepen your experience of the book. Brief review, Joseph is the great-grandfather of the couple of promise. Abraham and Sarah bring forth a family that brings forth a nation to bring forth a savior. So we're following their family through the Old Testament. Joseph was the 11th of 12 sons uh, given to, to Jacob, his father, and yet he was the favorite. He got that special coat. Jacob sends him 50 miles away, check on his brothers. They hate him because he is spoiled brat and he's the favored one. He comes in for the group hug. They strip him down, throw him in a pit. So picture this within like two seconds, favored son, penthouse to the pit. And that's really how suffering uh, meets most of us. All of a sudden out of the blue and were disoriented and Joseph was disoriented. They decided instead of leaving there to die, they'd make a quick buck. They sent him on his way down to Egypt as a slave. He's shackled, he's in a cage, but he gets sold into the house of Potiphar, who is the, the captain of the guard of the most powerful person in the world, Pharaoh. So we're like, huh, what is, what is God up to here? Uh, we see that, that trouble is stalking young Joseph's steps. Evil exists in the world. We've talked about that in this series. Trouble stalks our steps. It will find us eventually. We can't evade it. What are we going to do when it finds us? And that's what we're, we're watching Joseph because his story is our story. And Joseph has gone from the penthouse to the pit to slavery, kind of back to the penthouse, but trouble is coming again. Uh, we're going to have Martin read our scripture passage today from Genesis 39, uh, 6 through 28. Take it away, Martin. The setting uh, for this scene, let's just kind of, again, I like to kind of enter into our mind's eye. You can even close your eyes if you want and kind of picture the scene as I talk us through it, the scene that we just read. And Joseph has risen all the way to the top of Potiphar's house. Potiphar in the Hebrew, the language is that Potiphar has put his whole entire house and the oversight of his house in Joseph's hands. He's trusting him. Joseph has, has grown up. It's likely now, Joseph was 17 in our first scene. It's likely he's in his mid-20s. God's doing, he's no longer a spoiled brat. He's developed this character and this inner resolve and this strength and this leadership ability. Potiphar has seen that. And Joseph's about as high as he can get uh, as a slave. And yet he's still a slave. The narrator gives us this important detail that Joseph was well-built and handsome. Uh, I imagine Joseph was kind of had the Hollywood good looks, the, the square jaw and the dimple and the nicely uh, shaped hair that's blowing in the wind, the eyes like a lake you can get lost in. I'm getting weird now. I'm not a, I'm not a romance novelist. I'm a pastor, so we'll move on. But he's well, he's muscular, he's fit, he's well proportioned. He'd be on the cover of GQ or maybe up for people's sexiest man in the world. That's the deal. Who might notice? Mrs. Potiphar notices that. Trouble, here it comes. We can presume Potiphar, the man of the house who Joseph worked for, worked a lot and that he was away. We can presume that Potiphar maybe had other wives, maybe had other women on the side that was common. We can presume Mrs. Potiphar was a lot younger and probably good looking uh, herself. Mrs. Potiphar had a lot of time on her hands and had noticed uh, handsome, well-built uh, Joseph. And she had taken her time to kind of get to know him. And then we fast forward to the scene we're in. And so picture it, if you're watching a movie, 
Uh, cue the music. Joseph's alone in a room. Mrs. Potiphar comes in. She's put her best dress on. She's done her hair. She smells really good. And she kind of approaches Joseph quietly and comes up behind him. And this is where, if you're watching with your kids, you're like, kids, turn away. Because <laughs> you think that there, there, there's going to be some inappropriate stuff. And she says, will you go to bed with me? So she, she straight up propositions. It seems out of the blue, but we can presume that she's been working up to this. And maybe that she's been kind of leading up to this and dropping hints along the way. But she straight up propositions him. Joseph straight up refuses her. It's not what we would expect. It's not what you would typically see in the movie. Now, there's three reasons Joseph does this, and he's such an excellent example for those of us who follow Jesus. The three reasons he says no to her is, one, himself. It will hurt his own character, his own reputation. Two, it will hurt his relationship with Potiphar. It's disrespect because she is Potiphar's wife, and he works for her. And three, and most importantly, it will, it will ruin his relationship with God or distance him from God, who is his very life. Because as Joseph says in the text, this is a sin above all against God. But it's also a sin against me. It's also a sin against Potiphar. And so those three things come into play when we choose to sin, when we choose to do something that doesn't align with God's will. All of those things are at stake, and, and it's simply not worth it. Mrs. Potiphar didn't take no for an answer. And so we're told that she approached him, and you can look down in your text here, day after day. Even in verse 10, you notice a, a small a little change in the language. She comes to him and said, this time she says, don't go to bed with me, but just lie with me. Oh, we won't, we won't do anything. Just come into my bed and just lie beside me, Joseph. It'll be okay. She's kind of trying anything and everything. Every single time we're told Joseph refused, Joseph refused, Joseph refused. Joseph's not answering her text. He's not picking up the phone when she calls. He's blocked her on Facebook. He won't open her Snapchat. He's doing anything and everything. But Mrs. Potiphar is in the position of power. Now, normally, historically and traditionally, it's been men wielding their power for sexual gain, but women can do that as well. And Genesis is an equal opportunity book. We see women and men behaving badly all the time because the brokenness of sin comes uh, from within. Uh, Mrs. Potiphar now is done talking. <laughs> she, she's not messing around anymore. She thinks, ah, you know, I'm beautiful. Joseph is handsome. He's just playing hard to get. So she waits. And she waits till no one else is around. And again, she approaches Joseph. And this time, it's less of an invitation and more of a command. Slave, come to bed with me now. And we're told in the Hebrew that she grabs Joseph. This Hebrew word suggests violence. This is a straight up assault. And Joseph, what does he do? Joseph runs. Now, sexual temptation is everywhere. It's endemic to being human. If you live on planet Earth and you have a beating heart, you're going to face sexual temptation. Years ago in seminary, I'll never forget a chapel speaker. I forgot almost all my chapel speakers. I'll never forget this one. It's probably the only one I remember. And he was talking about sexual temptation to those of us who are preparing to be pastors. And he got very serious. He began to weep. And he said, uh, he's probably in his, his uh, early 60s at this point, this man. And he said, looking back decades, everyone in his original class in seminary, except for two people, had fallen to sexual temptation. I was kind of half paying attention at that point, And then I just set up and I'm like, oh, my goodness. Uh, sin, uh, the scriptures tell us in Genesis earlier on, is always crouching at our door. Peter tells us the evil one is prowling around like a lion, looking for someone to kill and devour. 
that doesn't only happen through sexual temptation, but it's a, it's a prime tool. No one is above it. No one. In our big read, if you're following along, Max says that he does, Max is a pastor too. He says he's done this deal where he asked himself if he, Max, were to fall to sexual temptation, he's going to write down a list of everybody's life it would ruin. And he does that, and he encourages pastors, he encourages anybody to do that. Maybe that's something uh, you can do at some point this week. If you choose to fall to sexual temptation, what effect would that have before it happens, thinking what the shrapnel would be? So if that was me, and I chose uh, to, to fall to sexual temptation, who would it affect? Well, my wife, for sure. Marriage would really struggle probably end. My daughters, Eden and Jubilee, my parents, really all of my friends and family. It would affect you, New Hope. You'd be looking for a new pastor. It would affect anyone really I've ever pastored that I've challenged to follow Jesus and I've challenged them to take the way of integrity because that would all be like, what does that guy know? That's what's at stake. And it's, it's tempting when it happens and, and, and it is to everyone when it crosses our paths. It's never worth it. Never worth it. Young Joseph, he knew that. Joseph has really grown up. And Joseph gives us the playbook. And Joseph had to be tempted. He was human. He had to think, after everything I've been through, after being in the pit, being dragged down to Egypt, I'm in slavery. I deserve this. No one's going to know. He didn't budge. And he gives us the playbook. When sexual temptation comes across our path, we refuse it. We refuse it, and we run, because it's never, ever worth it. And Joseph does that every single step of the way. And Joseph is a, he's become this man of character, this, you know, he was a spoiled brat at 17, now he's in his mid-20s, he's this man of character. How do you define character? This is how I would define it. You do what's right even when no one's watching. You do what's right even when no one's watching. It's easy to do what's right when people are watching. But can we do what's right when no one's watching? If you had a camera tracking your every move while no one's around, uh, watching the internet sites you visit, listening to your phone calls, reading your emails, would that be okay? Would you be like, here's the tapes, go ahead, I got nothing to hide. That's character. And Joseph, he, he had it in spades. Uh, Joseph, uh, the Proverbs says this, I love this verse. It says, a righteous man falls seven times, but rises again. And we see this in Joseph's story. He's falling, he's going down to Egypt, he's in the pit, but God's cultivating this inner righteousness in him. And because of that, Joseph will rise up. I think at this point, Mrs. Potiphar realized uh, Joseph wasn't just, just, uh, just playing hard to get. Joseph wasn't playing at all. And she kind of gave up. And at this point, she's spurned, she's embarrassed, she's angry, and so she plots the steal. She thinks that Joseph may go tell somebody what happened. She's holding his cloak, so she goes outside and she makes up the story, like she switches it, Joseph attacked me, and here's his cloak, he ran because he's scared. And so she seeds the ground with that story. Then she waits at home for Mr. Potiphar, who gets home late at night because he works hard. And you can just picture the scene of her sitting on the couch, holding his cloak, drinking a glass of wine. And then watch what she does in the story. She turns it on him first. She puts Mr. Potiphar on her heels. She's like, you brought this. And then she calls him this Hebrew, which is an ethnic slur. You brought this Hebrew into our house. And, and she said he's been making sport of us. In the Hebrew language, making sport of us means he's been playing us for a fool. 
So picture Potiphar, if you're walking in long day's work, suddenly your wife's coming out and saying, this person did this to me and he's making sport of us, he's making it look like, what are you gonna do? And really his hands were tied. I'm guessing that he went to Joseph, that he loved Joseph, that he's seen Joseph's character and he's like, what? This is, I've never seen anything like this. I'm guessing like Anthony Ray Hitton, Joseph's like, I had nothing to do with it. I, will, I, I promise you, sir, I've honored you in how I've behaved, but his hands were tied. But I think he kind of believed Joseph because in that day, if you were a slave and you tried to assault someone like Mrs. Potiphar, it would be certain death. No ifs, ands, or buts. Well, that's not what Mr. Potiphar did. Potiphar sends Joseph to one of his prisons that he oversees. I think he knows who's telling the truth. Then what happens? I think this will be a familiar thing if you're following along with the Joseph story. Here's what happens. We're reading in Genesis 39, 20b through 23. But while Joseph was there in prison, the Lord, here it is, the Lord was with him. He showed him kindness and he granted him favor in the eyes of the prison warden. So the warden put Joseph in charge of all those held in prison and he was made responsible for all that was done there. The warden paid no attention to anything under Joseph's care because the Lord was with Joseph and gave him success in whatever he did. Remarkable. We have the narrator telling us again, very similar to last week when he enters Egypt and he's sold into Potiphar's house, the narrator is telling us what was in Joseph's mind. Joseph believed he was a son of promise. Joseph believed that the Lord was with him and that God's in this with him and that God will get him through it. Similar to the Anthony Ray Hinton story, both men are very similar, falsely accused and in prison. Can you imagine both of them sitting in their cell? What would you do? Falsely accused, thrown in prison, and you're sitting there. I would probably throw in the towel. I'd probably give up, and I'm sure they thought about that. I'm sure there's times that that's what they wanted to do, but they did not because both men believe God was with them. Both men believe this God had the capacity, like a master junk artist, to take what they were going through, the evil and suffering, and transform it into some kind of good. Max puts it this way in his book. I love this turn of phrase. He said that God is consistently using our trouble for training. We try to build our houses, our proverbial houses, away from trouble. You can't. <laughs> trouble is always gonna find us. And this is really clear in the series. We got we to continue to repeat this. God is not the author of trouble. God's not responsible for evil and suffering. But God has the capacity until he one day will finally overcome evil with good. He has the capacity to enter evil and suffering and flip it and weave it into our stories to use it for good. And that's what he did in the life of Anthony Ray Hinton. That's what he's doing in the life of, of Joseph. We know that God is using these things in Joseph's life to train him up, to make him the man that he wants Joseph to be, to prepare him for what's coming, just like he is with all of us. We know this because of Psalm 105, the psalmist gives us an inside peek of the Joseph story. And this is what the psalmist says, that he called for a famine in the land of Canaan, cutting off its food supply. And then he sent someone to Egypt ahead of them, Joseph, who was sold as a slave. They bruised his feet with fetters, placed his neck in an iron collar. This is happening to Joseph until the time came to fulfill his dreams, the dreams he had way back when he was 17. And here's the last phrase. And the Lord, the same one that was with him, the Lord, Yahweh, tested 
Joseph's character. Joseph was a spoiled brat. His brothers hated him. He shipped off to Egypt. But in time, God's using all that to cultivate this deep inner integrity and character, moving him to the point one day as we follow the story that he'll be prime minister. He'll be the second most powerful person in the world. He'll literally save Egypt, save God's people, and save most of the world. Uh, the pit, slavery, prison, they were trainings for what was coming, for what was God was doing uh, in Joseph's life. What was true of Joseph is true of me. It's true of you. If God has the capacity to use anything in our lives, even evil and suffering, even trouble, to weave it into our stories, to train us up, to make us the people that he has called us to be. Do you believe this? If God is able to take a spoiled brat 17-year-old kid and train him up to be the prime minister, this godly man of character, what could you do with your trouble? What could you do with mine? If God has the capacity to take uh, this, this young black man who's falsely accused 30 years on death row and use that training to grow up Anthony Ray Hinton to be someone who's going to be meeting with presidents and beginning to change the world and the way we see things, what can you do with your stuff? What can you do with mine? Uh, author Bob Benson recounts a conversation he had with a friend who had had a heart attack. And this is near and dear to my heart. Most of you know uh, I had heart surgery. I, I have heart disease. So this one hit close to home. But Bob looked at his friend who had had a heart attack. He said, hey, what do you think of your heart attack? His friend's like, what do you, what do you mean? What do I think of my heart attack? He's like, would you do it again? His friend's like, no. He's like, would you recommend it for others? He's like, uh, no, we're talking about a heart attack. And then he asks these questions. He's like, but does your life mean more? Yeah, for sure. How's your marriage? Oh, it's, it's better. Do you have more compassion? Absolutely. Are you closer to the Lord? Demonstratively. And then he repeats the question, how do you like your heart attack? It's a, it's a reframing of things. It's not saying the heart attack's good or, or, or being unjustly accused is good or any of the things Joseph went through is good. Evil happens in the world. Trouble happens, but God has the capacity to enter into it and use our trainings to weave it in for our good. Peter says it like this, and the God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory in Christ after you have suffered a little while will himself restore you and make you strong, firm, and steadfast. That's what's happening in Joseph's life. Paul says that suffering produces perseverance and perseverance produces character and heart. That's what's happening in Joseph. A couple of things about training. If, if indeed God can use our trouble for training, and I think that he does, and I think that he, he will, and that's on full display in the life of Joseph. A couple of things about training. One, uh, training hurts. Training hurts. I wish it didn't, but there's no way around it. It hurts. I, uh, I, as you can probably see just by looking at me, uh, unlike Joseph, I'm not well built. And I, you probably guess I don't spend a lot of time working out in the gym lifting weights. But at times in my life, I have, like probably most people, when I've gotten the gym membership and I've gotten in there with the trainer and I'm, I'm going to do this and I'm just going to get big and buff. And I'll tell you what, it doesn't last for a whole long time. I'm usually done after a couple of months. Why? Because it hurts. Lifting weights hurts. That's what's happening in your muscles. You're literally breaking them down and stretching them and tearing them. And that's how the muscle gets built up. In time, you're like, yeah, I don't want to go to the gym today. <laughs> that hurts. But that is the way that you build muscles. As my old coaches in athletics said, no pain, no gain. In my early 20s, I hit uh, kind of a rough patch. I had a back injury I was dealing with, some financial struggles. So I was in grad school in Dallas and 
had to come home kind of with my tail between my legs a little bit. And I got, uh, I rented a, a little farmhouse in the middle of this huge orchard with two, two good friends because it was the only place we could afford. So it's these, these three dudes and no joke, all three of us had had serious relationships crumble within the last month. We were just a sad lot. I'm not kidding. My friend, Doug, I, I love him to death. And uh, he was hurting like the rest of us. And Doug, uh, I don't think he had a job at that point. And for probably a good month, all he wore was a bathrobe. And he would just walk around his bathrobe. And he was an incredible saxophone player, still is. And he'd walk around his bathroom playing the saxophone. <laughs> and then at night, he'd go out on the French porch and just play the saddest ballads on a saxophone. I mean, it was a rough time. Uh, there was lots of tears. And there was lots of questioning, like, what am I supposed to do with my life? What's in front of me? But here's the deal. When I look back at my life, my almost 50 years, that was, one, that was one of the stretches, that year or two, that I grew more than I'd ever grown. I was in training. God was using the heartache. God was using the failure year to strip me of pride, to strip me of even self-confidence, to build me back up into the man that he wanted me to be. Did I like it? No. Was God at the heart of causing those things? No but God had the capacity to use them, to weave them into my story for good. Whenever I've been in gyms and had those memberships, you always pass those people that like live in gyms and they're just ripped. Their bodies are rippling with muscles and you're just like, what is that? Well, you know intuitively that that happened because they work out a lot. <laughs> they go through a lot of pain to look like that. The same principle is true spiritually. I've never met a godly man or woman, someone that I'm around that I can just smell Jesus. And it's clear that they're filled with the Spirit. I can just intuitively look them in the eyes and say, tell me your story, because I know they've been through a lot. A lot of pain. No pain, no gain. So the first thing about training is it hurts. Second thing about training uh, is that training allows us to do tomorrow what we cannot do today. Training allows us to do tomorrow what we cannot do today. Back to weightlifting, yeah, I don't have a lot of experience in this, but my brief experience is I'd go in first day and I could barely get the bar off my chest and you know don't add any more weights and I'm struggling. There's times when I've weightlifted that I've stayed at it for a couple months and after six months of doing it faithfully, you can lift a heck of a lot more weight than you could on day one. When we go through suffering, when we go through trouble, God weaves it into our story to allow us to do tomorrow what we cannot do today. And we have to keep this in mind when we think about uh, trouble, when we're in the midst of trouble, when we're sitting in the pits, when we're being shipped off to Egypt, when we're sitting in prison, whatever your scenario might be right now, we have to think about this. God's with us. We're in training. God can actually use this evil and suffering for good. It's redeemable. And God's building us up so that tomorrow we can do something that we cannot do today. I love these verses from 2 Corinthians. I reflect on them a lot. And Paul says this, all praise to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is our merciful Father and the source of all comfort. He comforts us in all of our troubles so that we can comfort others. Catch this, when they are troubled, we will be able to give them the same comfort God has given us. What's your troubles been? Think, just think briefly in, in your life trajectory. What have your troubles been? There's no better person on the face there to, to minister and care for a person going through a divorce than someone who's been through a divorce. 
There's no better person to care for someone who's lost someone unexpectedly than another person that's lost someone unexpectedly. There's no better person to walk someone through losing a job or an epic failure than someone who's been through losing a job and epic failures. There's no better person to, to, to walk with somebody patiently and lovingly and kindly through something like depression who, than, than someone who's been through depression. You could just fill in the blank. That's how God works. We go through this world filled with trouble and filled with evil and suffering. God's not the author of any of it. He's trying to overcome evil with good until he does, though. He enters in miraculously and weaves our trouble and weaves our evil and suffering into something beautiful. Anthony said his first couple years on death row were, were horrid. He was filled with anger. He said he wanted to choke the life out of the people that had put him there. He had grown up in church. He grew up with his mom, teaching him how to follow Jesus, reading his Bible faithfully. He wanted nothing to do with that. He thought that God had probably abandoned him. His Bible was there, but it was on the shelf, unopened. And then one night, everything changed. About three years in, he said he heard a grown man sobbing and weeping. And the next morning, he heard a grown man laughing out loud. And he was reminded of what it was like to be human. And he was reminded that even though he was on death row unjustly, that he was human, that he was still alive. And everything flipped in him, he said at that moment. And the Spirit of God filled him and, and, and told him, you're here. I'm going to use you, Anthony, while you're here. So it started from that, that time on for the entire rest of his time there, 27 years. Anthony would wake up every single morning and start the morning yelling outside down the line to all of his death row uh, friends, we're alive. And they would respond, I'm alive. And they were claiming that day. We don't know what tomorrow holds, but we have today and today we're alive. Today we're going to choose to live. Anthony became known as the chaplain of death row during his time there. Uh, Brian Stevenson, who's worked with a ton of death row inmates, said he's never met anyone like Anthony. Just a contagious personality, filled with joy, filled with the spirit, making everyone laugh. Even the guards over his time would come to Anthony's cell to get advice from Anthony on marriage and life and faith. He had a profound effect on the men who were incarcerated and the men uh, who watched over them. Uh, he had this idea about halfway through that he wanted to start a book club on death row, which is like, what? And he went to the warden. He said, warden, uh, can I have 22? And the warden just laughed at him. I'm not going to put 22 death row inmates in a room. Uh, I'll give you six. So they were select spots. And the first spot Anthony decided to give was to a man uh, named Henry Hayes. And that, may, that name may not ring a bell, but Henry Hayes was put on death row in Alabama. He was part of the KK for brutal lynching of a young black man. <laughs> can, can you believe it? <laughs> Anthony said he wanted to foster a friendship with Henry Hayes because he believed since he was a young boy, he was indoctrinated. He didn't know what he was doing. And he wanted to give him kind of the benefit of the doubt. It had to be the spirit of God. So Henry Hayes, I mean, anything to get out of your cell. Yeah, I'm in. The first book they studied was by celebrated black author, uh, James Baldwin. And they began to cultivate this remarkable friendship. Henry Hayes uh, was, was executed. And when you're executed, you get a last meal and you get a last statement. And Henry Hayes' last statement was this. He said, I was raised since I was a little boy uh, to hate certain people. And now <laughs> on my last day, in my last moment, I realized that the very people I was trained to hate were the people who taught me how to love. Oh, man, isn't that incredible? And if you need hope for any of the stuff going on right now, uh, I hope that that gives you uh, some hope.
Anthony came to believe that God was still in his plan, that what happened to him was horrible and it was an injustice. He talks about that all the time. It's not right, but God was able to enter his injustice and enter the evil and suffering of his life and weave it into his story to train him up to making this incredible man that to this day is literally changing the world. And Anthony says this in his book. He says, I'm, I'm a true believer that God will never allow you to go through anything that he cannot bring you out of. It just shows you what God can do if you put your faith and trust in him. What about you? Uh, what about me? Do we believe that? Maybe you're in trouble right now. Maybe I'm in trouble. If not, we will be very soon. It's just part of what it means to live in this world in skin and flesh. When trouble comes, will we uh, see it as a time to just bail, to just give up, to get angry and bitter? Or will we understand that God is with us and that in his hands, God can take our trouble and transform it and use it for training to make us the people that he is creating us to be. Do you believe this? Let me pray for us. God, thank you for your goodness and grace. Uh, thank you that you're with us, God, uh, like you were with uh, Anthony, like you're with Joseph. Uh, the same is true for us, God, wherever we're at uh, today. You're with us. You're right there. And you're not only with us, but you have this incredible capacity until that one day that we long for, God, that you will fully overcome evil with good. You have the capacity in the here and now to enter our evil and suffering and take them and look at them and say, huh, what could this become? And you can weave it into our lives. You can train us up to be men and women you created us to be. Please do that in our lives. Come, Lord Jesus. We love you and we praise you. In Jesus' name, amen.